Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Nick and Anne are sitting down with Nishant Reddy, CEO and co-founder of Satya Capital, a privately held boutique investment firm with a portfolio that is both wide and deep within the cannabis industry, including its distribution arm Vantage Point and its CPG brand, A Golden State. Our hosts sat down with Nishant, a longtime advocate and consumer of cannabis, to talk about his jump from Wall Street into the business of legal marijuana and how his firm has found success in the industry. Nick and Ann also touch on the company's plans for expansion, its focus on operating a sustainable and carbon neutral business, and how it's been able to weather the COVID-19 pandemic. In addition, they touch on consumer behavior trends over the last 14 months, the push for federal legalization of cannabis, and how the industry will continue to innovate in a post-pandemic world. Now on to our conversation with Nishant Reddy of Satya Capital. Nishant Reddy, founder and CEO of Satya Capital. Um, we are so excited to have you here. Um, I am even more excited to know that you're a Jersey boy, um, 908 representing. Um, <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into cannabis and what's, tell us your cannabis journey. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you both for having me. And as you said, uh, I still rep the 908 area code, you know, nothing but Jersey love. <laughs> Um, so I got into the cannabis industry about eight years ago. Um, my background was institutional finance, investment banking, and private equity. Um, and I had the opportunity through, uh, a real estate development company that I had started to help a California dispensary group, um, secure private placement financing. So this was back in the medical days of California. You know, as most people know, California went medically legal back in 1996, but, you know, fast forward to 2021, there still is no banking, there's no lending, et cetera. So I, I got approached. Um, I helped them secure uh, financing. Um, through that process, they asked me to come on board as an interim COO and help them, you know, scale the business. And, you know, do they add more retail? Do they add more distribution, et cetera? Um, up until that point, I have always been a very passionate cannabis consumer. Um, and you know, we can dive into that more, but this really was my foray into seeing the business side of cannabis. Right. And at this point it was 2013, whatever. Um, it was such a foreign concept to me that you could walk into a shop and legally buy cannabis. I mean, it literally blew my mind. And when I saw that, when I understood that standing in San Francisco and I was like, wait a second, Nobody is stopping this. There's no DEA agents. There's no police. Like this is 1000% above board. It's these were beautiful retail shops. Um, and then once I really dove into the numbers, it was like, wow, this is a really viable business. You know, at the time, the two gentlemen, you know, they were not sophisticated entrepreneurs. These were two guys that basically, you know, had transitioned from operating in a black market to a medical market. And now we're trying to figure out how do we grow this business. Um, the light bulb went off for me when I saw the viability of this. And it really was like, wow, 
I have the institutional finance background. I know how to build and run businesses. I have the deep knowledge of cannabis. And now I'm getting that third piece that this is a really viable business. Um, and so that is really what made me take the leap of faith um, leave wall street, use, you know, my personal capital, my savings, the income I was generating for my real estate development company to then launch stock your capital. Um, and then over the last several years, grow it to what it is today. Let's talk about Satya Capital then. You know, you, before we started recording everything, you were giving us kind of the background of it. And you guys have a really unique structure. You got a lot of touch points throughout the, the cannabis space. So give us, give us that background. Tell us about how you guys operate. Yeah, so Satya Capital functions as a boutique investment firm focused on the entire cannabis industry, right? Um, we keep a broad lens in terms of our mandate, which, you know, technically in most investment firms, a broad lens isn't really desirable. You know, they want to know that you have an expertise in a certain area, a certain mandate, and that's what you specialize in. The way Satya Capital views it is, this entire industry is nascent. It's changing every single day. There's rapid growth. There's rapid innovation. Um, we need to be looking at everything. That's tech. That's you know branding opportunity. That's distressed asset acquisitions, multi-state license plays, etc. And furthermore, because we're actually owner operators of a portfolio of cannabis companies, everything from cultivation, distribution, a portfolio of brands, retail dispensaries, we sit in a very unique position in that we see a tremendous pipeline of deal flow. And through that, it's a natural feeder for us to find opportunities and then marry our backgrounds as both institutional financiers with a, with a pedigree in investing, as well as, you know, seven, eight years as true cannabis operators. And so that allows us to truly not only source, vet, but then make the best investments and, you know, bring them to a point of fruition, whether that be an exit, whether it be scaling the business, et cetera. So can you tell us how, um, so Satya is like the mothership, right? So can you tell us how um, the the other lines of business shake out and and kind of the, the delineation between them? Absolutely. So, you know, when we, when I started back in, the, you know, 2014, 15, you know, like I said, I started with retail dispensaries. I then moved to building cultivations um, in Oregon. So I had the experience of both cultivation, retail, through that experience, I wasn't super married to brick and mortar retail. You know, I had the long-term vision that although it's sexy and exciting today, it really didn't strike me as a sustainable business model for the long run. I thought distribution, delivery, and online presence would become ever more present as the industry eventually legalized. The cost to run retail dispensaries, as you guys know, is exorbitant. Um, and it's really hard to make it a viable, you know, large margin business. So I wanted to focus on things like cultivation, distribution, and building brands. So the first line of the business we built was cultivation, because for me, it's the fundamental building block of everything else cannabis. If I own my own supply chain and I can ensure that I have the best quality cannabis that's being produced, then I can go anywhere I want from there. And so the natural progression from there was building our distribution company, Vantage Point Distribution. So you had Satya that had a, you know, a network of indoor cultivations that we built and designed from the ground up that today account for about 
1% of all of the cannabis being produced in California. But again, we specialize in that top 1% of cannabis that's being produced. And then you have vantage point distribution, which moves all of that product. So that product is then moved through vantage point and put into our portfolio of brands. So, or we partner with other brands to do things like white label flower procurement, brand development, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the way Satya is structured is, as you said, the parent company, the cultivations, the distribution company, the portfolio of brands, and now we have our retail dispensary arm. Would you classify yourself then as a, a, a multi-state operator then? Um, like the, the traditional companies or because you're all separate, is it, is it different? It, so it's, it's that's a really interesting question. Um, we are in fact fully vertically integrated, right? But we're vertically integrated through a portfolio of companies that we've built that are all actually standalone companies. Um, as we continue to expand into other states, um, yes, we will be a fully functioning multi-state operator, but we may not have that same level of vertical integration in every state that we go to. So talk about the states that you're in right now. So currently our focus is entirely on California. Um, we sold our positions in Oregon. Um, we are currently in the process um, and have been for the last three years of applying and looking to enter the New Jersey market. Um, we have a venture in the Massachusetts market right now. Um, and then we are looking to get involved in New York through a JV partner that we work with in New Jersey, uh, who is another multi-state operator um, that focuses on the East Coast. Got it. And, and you had mentioned that, you know, you have the, the about 1% of the total cannabis sold in California, but you focus on the, the top 1%, I guess, what makes it, are, are you talking in terms of price, in terms of quality? Because we get so many people kind of talking about um, the, the, their quality is the best, their growers are the best, their nutrients are the best, I guess, what makes you the best? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? So in California, it's definitely, I would argue, the most competitive cannabis market in, in the country, right? And the reason I say so is because, again, you've had a medical market that's been established and mature since 1996. You have the largest black market production in the country coming out of California. You know, there's so much talent, right? There's so much good cannabis being produced, so much innovation, whether legal or illegal, that, you know, the consumers here are sophisticated. They know what they want. So you're not going to get away selling them crap. Maybe you will for a second, but you're probably not going to continue to get, you know, repeat business. Right. And so what we focus on is top 1% of quality. Um, again, our entire cultivation network is indoor. We only use proprietary genetics. We don't source any genetics or seeds. Um, we water our gardens directly with snow melt water from Mount Shasta. Because of that, we don't require any reverse osmosis. We don't require any purification. It's pure glacier snow melt coming into our facilities at 44 degrees, which, you know, for someone who doesn't understand the benefits of that, basically, we don't have to strip away all of the natural minerals and beneficial properties of that water, right? And at the simplest form, we're in the business of agriculture. So you 
care about the inputs you're putting into your plants. And in this case, for us, it's all about the cleanest, purest inputs ultimately lead to the cleanest, purest output. So it's the water, it's the proprietary genetics, it's the organic coconut husks that we're cultivating in. It's the experience of our cultivation team. You know, these, this is an award-winning team that has been cultivating in California's medical market for over a decade. You know, we were winning uh, awards for genetics like Zuki's long before California even went recreationally legal. So we didn't figure out how to do this today. We'd been doing this at a very high level for a very long time. The difference is now we're able to sell it to everybody that's 21 and up. Um, you know, and so those SOPs have been there. And then, you know, as a result, because of that focus on small batch premium cannabis, it ends up correlating to a premium price in both wholesale and retail. I think it's real interesting the the point you made about the the Shasta Mountain spring water that you're using within your cultivation process because I've seen over the the last couple of months there's a large number of stories coming up about you know sustainability within the cannabis space especially when it comes to the um, indoor cultivation and stuff and so how important is sustainable sustainability to to your whole process and to your business. So it's, and I appreciate you asking that, you know, so selfishly, I am actually an obsessive skier, right? So I am super sensitive to climate change and the preservation of good quality snowfall. So, you know, because of that, you know, funny enough, or, you know, but in all seriousness, sustainability is very up, you know, top of mind for us, right? Like I really do care about climate change, the environment, um, you know, I'm connected to it again because of my personal hobbies. So again, we water with all natural snow melt. We rely only on hydroelectric power. I would argue that we're the first and only carbon neutral cultivation, indoor cultivation in the country. We recycle all of our soil. You know, we actually give it to community gardens to help feed, you know, um, those less fortunate. All of our packaging is both FSC or SFI certified. Um, you know, we roll our joints in 100% organic hemp. So at every touch point, we really do care about these stuff. And, you know, even for me as a founder entrepreneur, I've, I've been influenced by books like, you know, um, let, you know, Jan Chouinard's Let Our People Go Surfing, you know, the founder of Patagonia. And for me, it was super inspirational hearing him talk about like, you know, there's no reason why Patagonia couldn't be a leader in sustainability maybe it would cost more money, but it was a cognizant choice that they had. And so as I'm reading this and we're building these companies, it's like, well, if they can do it, why can't we do it, right? It's simply just a function of, is this important for us? And so it is. Um, and so across that entire supply chain, you know, we've made decisions in order to invest in this stuff. And by the end of this year, actually every single company that Satya owns and operates will be carbon neutral. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I think from an investor standpoint too, a lot, there's, you know, especially if you look at the Robin Hood, like the retail investors, the Robin Hoods, and they're, they're, you know, conscious investors. Um, they're looking for these, you know, opportunities, you know, to, to participate, you know, in companies that are sustainable, ethical, um, and that's becoming a more important core value for a brand. Um, so it's not, and that's not going away anytime soon. So it's really interesting to hear how tightly ingrained that is into your company. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk about, um, we're kind of emerging out of this 
this 2020 COVID pandemic, I mean, <laughs> we're not, we're not done yet for sure. Um, but it was a really interesting time for cannabis. Um, it did really well for the most part. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how, you know, how did you guys weather that? Um, and what kind of consumer behavior shifts have you seen? Um, and, and what have you really learned in the last, I don't know, 14 months? Um, no. Yeah. So we learned a lot, right? So I'm fortunate in that my co-founder and business partner was the CFO, you know, as well as chief risk officer for, you know, a $700 million credit opportunity fund prior to joining me. Right. So he's always thinking with his risk hat, right? He's always thinking about that type of stuff. And it's a very good, <laughs> did he see this one coming? <laughs> no, well, so it's funny. We did, we did actually early on and I'll tell you okay. about it. So it's like, there's this natural push and pull between the two of us as I'm always trying to innovate and push. And he's always thinking about risk and dollars and cash management and stuff like that. So in early November, December, when we started to hear about, you know, Wuhan and, you know, this, this virus and things were happening. We didn't obviously know it was a pandemic. We didn't know it was coming to the U S but we knew enough that a lot of our supply chain in terms of packaging material, stuff like that does come from China. And so that alarmed us enough to be like, Hey, if something happens in China, that's going to have a ripple effect to the entire supply chain that we rely on. So immediately what we did was we bought one year's worth of packaging material for all of our brands, as well as all supplies that we needed to run our businesses that came from China. So it was wow. an important move because one, we needed to have the liquidity, which, you know, as you guys know, a lot of cannabis companies str struggle with liquidity, right? And so it was a good situation to be in because, you know, Simone's wherewithal and the fact that he's a tremendous CFO, we were not only profitable, we had plenty of cash and we were able to dip into that cash and buy a year's worth of packaging um, because if something were to happen, we, we didn't want it to affect sales. And then from that point on, as January, February, March went on, by March, we were like, wait, this is actually going to affect us. Now we need to really be thinking about business continuity for our facilities, right? So from there, it became things like, you know, breaking our cultivation team into three shifts. So we had, you know, um, enough kind of support with every job function in each of those shifts, because we assumed more chances than not, we were going to have a team go down or a member go down and we'd have to quarantine cultivations could never stop. You know, we put in place immediately a no travel without manager approval. We added extra air handlers, stuff like that, mandatory masks, you know, gloves, face shields in the cultivation rooms. So we got really aggressive really fast. Um, and we were fortunate that, you know, so far, knock on wood, we've really only had one confirmed case within all of our companies and all of our employees and jumped on that immediately. Now that was fortunate because we didn't have any type of interruption, whether it be from cultivation, distribution, packaging, sales, retail, um, to the market. Right. So then the next biggest thing we had to solve for was we were no longer in the office. So how does our sales team and our retail support team function if they can't go to stores and show this amazing cannabis that we grow? How do we sell? arguably some of the most expensive cannabis in the state of California, if people can't see and experience it. Right. So that was the challenge that we faced. Um, and we ended up doing a massive model of using our distribution partners 
and our own distribution company to mail samples and deliver samples. And we just were actively dropping off samples and letting buyers experience the cannabis on their own kind of cadence. And that allowed us to continue to grow sales. And during COVID in 2020, we actually more than doubled our market penetration, which was tremendous. And so now we're in about one in every three dispensaries in the state of California at the same price points we've always been in and we're completely sold out. And so we actually have a new facility coming online that's about to 3X our production and that facility is already sold out. And so, you know, we were fortunate in that I think we were aggressive and quick to identify some of the red flags and, and make, you know, I think a management of that risk, right? And, you know, deploy capital to where we think it needed to be deployed in order to protect ourselves in this pseudo doomsday scenario that, you know, to your point, we couldn't really predict or nor did we have a crystal ball. That's so interesting. The, the innovation that you guys were able to come up with in terms of how do you get in front of your, your, your customer? How do you get in front of those buyers to be able to, to keep the product distributing? I, I, I love the, the ingenuity that you guys showed there. Um, you know, how do you, how do you see the industry continuing to evolve then? I mean, I do, in an ideal world, most of the people are going to start getting, um, the vaccines will start returning to a sense of normalcy pre-pandemic. Do you see continuous innovation to these distribution channels? And how are you guys kind of approaching that return to normalcy? So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? Like sales of cannabis have just exploded. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you have the right products and the right price points and the quality, like it's been tremendous, right? And it's definitely super fortunate that we've been classified as an essential business, you know, knock on wood, that was obviously outside of our control, but it's a huge win for the industry in just terms of like how we're viewed and respected. Um, Moving forward, I really believe sales will continue to escalate because, you know, not only did you have people who were in COVID that were consumers already consuming more, but a large population of what we would call cannabis have also now become cannabis consumers, right? And I think a big, a big, um, you know, a big uh, effect of that is just how you've seen the popularity in edibles really rise, right? Here in California, edibles have largely become the second most popular, you know, product class, you know, and, and cannabis flower has remained number one, which I also find interesting considering there were these potential respiratory effects of COVID, but it just shows you the power of flower and that people really do care about that. They care about the quality, the processy of smoking flower, just all of the, just the, you know, the, the intricacies and the purity of flower. Right. And so for us, I'm going to be honest, that was scary, right? Like we are, we are known for premium flower and now you have a pandemic where it's affecting people's respiratory systems. Like that is a scary position to be in and that is completely out of our control. So what we immediately started doing there was innovating and rapidly creating non-combustion forms to enjoy our product. And I think to your question, Nick, as, as we start to come out of COVID where I see a big shift is people want to travel. Like people want to get out of their houses. People want to jump on a flight. They want to go to the beach. Like everybody needs a freaking vacation. Right. So I do see a, an increased demand in things like vape. You know, you saw a dip in vape 
post vape gate, which makes a lot of sense. You saw edibles skyrocket after that because of COVID, you know, newcomers may not want to smoke cannabis because it's new to them, et cetera. They might be scared of the respiratory effects, but now that people are getting out in the world again, all the reasons they loved vape are back. It's discreet. There's no smell. Um, it's easy to travel with. So I do see vape starting to shoot up and I do see, you know, um, an increase, an increased demand for quality. I think it was also really interesting that we saw um, an, an overlap between people who consume cannabis for medicinal reasons and people who consume it for, you know, quote unquote, recreational reasons. Um, I think during COVID, we were kind of all experiencing this collective trauma. There was anxiety, there was depression, there was substance abuse issues. Um, and, you know, cannabis was a way to kind of step in and show that, you know, it, it's this interesting hybrid between, you know, something that is recreation and fun to use. And like, like me, I, I'm, I'm a gummy edible girl. Like I, I use it to relax. I use it to, to help myself sleep. Like, so for all intents and purposes, I'm a medical user, but I don't have a card. I can just go in and, and, you know, go to my local dispensary. So I think that, um, it kind of boosted the, the medicinal side of usage. And that hasn't really been discovered. Like that hasn't really been researched yet because we just don't do, we just don't, look at them separately anymore in this country or in California, at least. So um, I think that was just an interesting thing that I've been thinking about as I think of, you know, how the consumer has changed their relationship with cannabis. Such a great point. And I think it's so, I think it's become such second nature to myself as well that I haven't even thought about it the way you just said it, but it's true. Like it's this marriage of, you know, medicinal and recreational. And it's such a interesting, beautiful product class that it's just a function of like in that moment, how do you want to use it? What's the, what's the purpose you're seeking to, to achieve. And it, it literally is a back and forth type thing. And it, there's no reason why it can't be both, right? Like why can't we take a gummy to have a great time, but also take the edge off and feel really good and de-stress, right? Yeah. And I think that having, well, I guess, let me ask you the question. So now that, that we've had four states vote to legalize since the beginning of 2021, uh, what does this mean for the future of the industry? How, do we think we're going to need a certain threshold of states, threshold of states to be the tipping point that will, you know, finally get, you know, the, the federal government to legalize or reschedule, or I guess what's your feeling there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a threshold of states, but I 100% believe that time, and I don't think time is very long, right? Because as you said, four new states have legalized post COVID, what state doesn't need to create revenue and create jobs, right? And if you look at cannabis, it's been like double digit job growth year over year. There's twice as many uh, cannabis full-time workers and there are dentists in this country. Like the trend is here and it's only continuing to excel. So I, I do think as it just becomes more obvious and apparent and just kind of a function of like getting out of this pandemic, I think the pressure is on and you're gonna just see that natural order of operations happen. and. I don't know if it's a threshold of states or just more time or whatever, but I do think the end result is federal legalization. You know, I think I get, the, I think it ties more to just like politics, right. And which administration wants to prioritize that versus 
other risk headlines, priorities they're trying to manage as well as getting reelected or like winning an election, right? Yeah, I think you're you're spot on on politics because it seems like, especially with the party that's in power right now, it's sporadic on what any one Democrat can believe when it comes to to cannabis. You know, Kamala Harris is a very popular example that has changed her her stance on it over time. Joe Biden seems to have kind of embraced it, but it, it's more towards a decriminalization rather than federal legalization. It seems like. But he doesn't want any of his staffers. Yeah, none of the staffers it. can do it. And then. <laughs> The person that I think is real interesting when you brought up politics is Chuck Schumer, you know, in, in the Senate, he's been yeah. very loud about, you know, it's that the time is federal for federal legalization is now. And it's like, honestly, dude, you could bring a bill up anytime you want to, to take care of this. And he's in an election coming up here. So obviously he's going to be beating that drum because we've seen it in the, just the last November election. Cannabis is a very popular issue on both sides of the issue, both sides of the aisle. And so, you know, I, I, I think you're 100 percent on there that it, that it's going to be politics. But, um, you know, safe banking is kind of the 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 hot topic right now, I think, in, in terms of what's the actual bill that could pass right now. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on on safe banking, um, its likeliness to pack, pass and then what it could mean for the industry? Um. So starting with what it means for the industry, I think it means everything, right? Like it's just absolutely ludicrous that we're talking about billions upon billions of dollars, 300 something thousand full-time workers, and there's no safe banking. Like that's that's crazy. There's there's plenty of ways for the federal government and state governments to tax cannabis, but there's no safe banking, right? So it's like, it's this like crazy hypocrisy that's like, hey, we wanna take all the benefits of you guys, we want to make you essential. We want the medicine. We want you to create jobs. We want, you know, to tax you, but we don't actually want to give you the support to actually like right. help We're you gonna make it as hard as we possibly can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, you know, it's like, it's so short-sighted because it's like, then how do you create jobs? How do you create lasting, healthy, sustainable businesses? So to me, like, you know, people get so caught up on federal legalization, I don't think it really matters. It's going to happen at some time in the future. Safe banking really is what puts gasoline on the fire in a positive way for cannabis, right? It really allows businesses to do business. It allows them to borrow money. It allows them to grow. It allows institutions to feel comfortable to invest in the space. Like that's really what we need. Um, in terms of the likelihood of it passing, I mean, I think the chances are better now than they've ever been. But with that being said, you know, I think getting 60 votes, even in a democratically controlled Senate right now on something like this is challenging. You know, I do think it's challenging. Um, I think, you know, Senator Schumer and Senator Booker's, um, you know, cannabis reform bill is even more challenging to get passed. Right. But I do think we're in a better situation now than we were a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if I, I would sit here and say, I confidently believe it will just pass. Like, I think it will take a lot of work to make that happen. And if it does pass, I will say, I do think it would be the single biggest thing um, that happens for cannabis in terms of like politically moving forward. I feel like that. Uh, I was going to say that, that, that just sounded like a very veteran cannabis answer, the, the cautiously optimistic <laughs> outlook. It's like, it's going to happen, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because we, you know, we talk about um, the, the 
the states that have voted, you know, pretty overwhelmingly for legalization, you know, New York being one of them. But then there was an article in the Wall Street Journal today talking about how the Hamptons is running They're the they're now running into issues because there's, um, you know, the little hamlets and the little the little towns on out uh, in the Hamptons don't want necessarily cannabis in their town. They don't want they don't want the dispensaries there. But then the mayor of Sag Harbor, I think, came out and was like, I don't want to lose tourist business to, you know, Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard when, you know, just because they can get cannabis there, like bring it here. Like, we'll like, we'll use the resources. We'll, you know, use the tax benefits. So I think it's really interesting that there's people that are, you know, still like, oh, not in my backyard. And, you know, then there's like the mayor of Sag Harbor who's coming out and being like, no, 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 bring it to my backyard. (laughs) I want it in my backyard. Um, So uh, yeah, just, just interesting and that we're still having these battles. But I do think having like a safe banking brings an air of professionalism, legitimacy, you know, knowing that, you know, you're not going to be carrying around big bags of cash to pay your taxes kind of thing. Like, you know, that's all really good. So uh, slowly but steady, we're going to win this race, I think. Um, So second to last question, what are your predictions for 2021? Um, so I think it's, listen, I think like, I think top's been pulled off of cannabis. Like it's here, you know, like, um, you know, Senator Cory Booker is actually a close friend of mine. You know, we've worked together for a long time, you know, again, keeping true to New New Jersey roots. Um, and he said it really well to me, like several years ago, it's not a question of, of if it's a question of when, right. And I think 2020, it sometimes feels odd to say that, right? Because we're coming out of a pandemic. There was so much hurt, so much loss, so much suffering. But for the movement of cannabis, for providing people medicine, for for getting closer to legalization, all of these were, you know, catalysts, just helpful for kind of moving this giant thing forward, right? And I think 2021 is going to be even greater for cannabis as an industry, as well as legalization, because, you know, I've heard this on NPR and stuff, you know, everybody's talking about the roaring twenties coming out of COVID and people getting vaccinated and stuff like that. I think cannabis is a big part of that. You know, people want to enjoy, people want to have fun. They want to use it as a medicine. There's a lot more acceptance. There's a lot more appreciation, you know, seven out of 10 Americans are in favor of legalization at this point, you know, more than half the country has some form of legalized cannabis. So people want it, they're going to start using it. And as people start to get back to the normalcy of their life, I think cannabis is a big part of that, you know, and I think the health and wellness movement has taken a hold of this country for the last several years. I think coming out of a pandemic, it's going to be, you know, even a bigger issue. And, you know, people don't want to drink as much, you know, like we've always called it Cali sober out here, but I think that type of thinking really starts to stick. And, you know, what you were talking about, like a lot of people will start to realize like, Hey, I can eat a couple milligram edible and feel great and not be hungover and, check all the boxes that I want. And I think that mentality starts to become more and more accepted. And we get, we, we slowly start, you know, in, in the coastal cities, the Western part of the country, this mentality has been here for a while, but for the rest of the country, I think it's slowly starting to get there where it's not crazy to say that, right. Mm -hmm. It's not crazy to say, Hey, you know something, I don't want to have that bottle of wine today. I'm a parent. 
I'm this, I'm a professional, I have work tomorrow, but I'm going to eat this gummy. I'm going to, you know, hit my vape pen and do all of the things everybody else is doing. And I'm the same as you. I'm not some bad derelict type person, right? And so I think all of these different factors playing together is really going to start to move us forward. And as a country really like accept and embrace this. I, I love that you use the term Cali sober. I actually had not heard that until I watched that uh, new Demi Lovato documentary that's on YouTube. And I think she referred to herself as Cali sober. I had never yeah. heard of it either. And I am in Cali. I need to research um, this. Uh, but we actually ha- now have two more questions for you, Nishant. So, um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. so first, you know, you've talked a lot about the the things that Sacha Capital is touching, all all the, the exciting stuff you guys have been working on. But, you know, what's next for your company that has you most excited as you look down, you know, either the short term or the long term? What what, you know, when you're talking to investors, when you're talking to your employees, what gets you really, you know, just energized? I think we're, you know, we're innovators in the space, right? Like we're we're leading from true passion, you know, like. I love cannabis. You know, it has been a huge part of my life since, you know, I was in college, even high school, which, you know, um, and for so many years of my life, I had to hide it. You know, when I was an investment banker, it was okay for my peers to get, you know, as drunk as they wanted and come back to a trading floor. And if I were to say like, Hey, I don't really drink alcohol. Like, you know, I smoke a joint, like I I would have been fired. Right. And so like, for me, this whole thing is so surreal, you know, having been in this since the medical days and seeing where it's going now and just seeing the way people talk about it and the way they embrace it and all of this type of stuff. So for us, you know, I'm truly passionate about innovating in the space, doing stuff like, you know, last year, you know, 3% of our revenue went to support the ACLU, you know, like in my opinion, we were in a very pivotal time in this country's history. And as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a minority, I felt very connected to the issues that we were talking about. And I felt that I had a platform. And I also believe that cannabis is intrinsically positive. You know, the plant has always been medicinal for hundreds, thousands of years. So I felt like it was my social responsibility to align my country, my companies with movements like that. You know, last year, 10% of our revenue was being given away to like California food banks and community hospitals. So like for me, nothing makes me more satisfied and happy than to continue to develop some of the best cannabis products in the country, whether it's being, you know, ultra high-end genetics that nobody else has, whether it's solventless jelly sauce pens, you know, when everybody's focused on distillate oil and stuff like that, we're taking it to another level where it's like, if you want the best, if you care about what's in this product, if you care about small batch quality, you care about health and wellness and transparency, that's what we're innovating here. And while we're doing it, we're carbon neutral, we're sustainable, we're partnering with the ACLU, we're showing you that all of these things are possible. And to my investors, we've been profitable since our 12th month of operation. You know, like it's doable, like it's totally doable. And while we're doing these things, we can also have tremendous social impact. You know, like um, when we open up in New Jersey, we've already pledged that 10% of our workforce is gonna come from rehabilitated, felons, you know, especially those that have been unfairly prosecuted for cannabis infractions, you know, again, we don't need to do this stuff. It's personal to me being a minority male, right? Um, 
But it just shows you that like, this is a beautiful movement. It's a beautiful time in this country's industry and cannabis is intrinsically positive. And yes, we can create jobs. There's a ton of money to be made, all of these things, but we can really move this country into this, an amazing place, you know, like an amazing good place. And that makes me super happy. I love that. What a great answer. So our last question, and we ask this to all of our entrepreneurs and all of our guests is if, if you could write your dream headline, or you could open up the, the New York times or the LA times tomorrow and see your dream story, what would that look like? I think my dream headline would be that if Satya capital was, you know, labeled and widely considered to be like the North star for the cannabis industry. Right. And if we were, if we were described as the way things could be done, right. You know, the way, the way the roadmap that this is possible, that you can build great companies, you can do all of these types of things, you can create value and revenue and profitability, but at the same time, achieve all of these like positive social things. And if that was the headline, you know, identifying that, that would be the greatest thing out there for me. Right. Because that's, that's obviously why we got into this. Um, when I think about the stories that need to be told more, I think it's these type of positive stories at any scale, right? It doesn't have to be the biggest company out there. It could be, you know, a small mom and pop in Colorado. It could be an ancillary company, you know, I just sharing this level of positivity that how this industry and the people involved in it are giving back and making a positive change. That's what's going to destigmatize this. That's what's going to get bureaucrats to pay attention to this in the positive way. That's what's going to like quiet the naysayers that are like, I don't want this in my backyard. You know, I don't care if we have 50 bars in my town and drunk driving, but I don't want a cannabis dispensary, right? It's like the positive stories are what are going to get us there. Not about like, oh, California's black market is doing this or, you know, uh, tax revenue did this and this. It's like, you know, if you want to focus on that, then let's focus on the fact that there is no safe banking, right? Like let's focus on those things that make people make bad decisions in this industry, you know? So that, that's really kind of how I feel. Cause I think there's a lot of people doing really, really amazing stuff, you know? Um, and it's a pleasure to work with them and get to meet them. I love it. I love it. Those personal positive stories. Absolutely. Um, Nishant Reddy, founder and CEO of Satya Capital. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a great conversation. We definitely love to have you on in a couple of months again, just talk about the progress y'all are making. And, uh, um, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. The pleasure is all mine. Again, a special thanks to Nishant Reddy, founder and CEO of Satya Capital for joining us today. You can learn more about uh, his companies by visiting satyacap.com vantagepointdistro.com and a goldenstate.com. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com uh, and make sure you're subscribing to our newsletter and uh, to The Green Rush on your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take.